I'm looking forward to Friday night and also again Sunday evening. And uh, you can come both nights if you want. We hope you invite your friends to come to worship the Lord through the medium of this beautiful presentation that the worship arts team has been working on. Please take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, the 100th Psalm. This is one of the more familiar Psalms. I was surprised when I looked back through my log of sermons that I have prepared over the last 42 years as a pastor. I'd never taught on this Psalm. And I thought it's long overdue. And I'm glad I did because I studied it in a way that I had never studied it before. Psalm 100, the heading is a psalm for thanksgiving. Let me stop here a moment and take note of the fact that this is the only one of the 150 psalms that has such a heading. We know the psalms themselves are filled with reference to giving thanks to the Lord. This is the only one, however, which bears this heading. The heading itself is not inspired. The words of the psalm is, but I thought that would be worth taking note of. If you really want to know how to give thanks to the Lord, this is where you go in Scripture. It's a good place to begin. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so if you'll follow along in whatever version of the Bible you have with you. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. In 1792, when William Carey arrived in India, little did he know what great things God would do through his life. We do not have time to recount those achievements, but we know the Lord used this man who considered himself very ordinary, a man who had very limited educational opportunity, but one who was self-educated. As he worked at his cobbler's bench in England, his native country, he had a map of the world over his bench, and he prayed over it as he did his work. He also taught himself Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Dutch, and more languages. That's amazing, isn't it? But this man, William Carey, when he arrived, he was succeeding another missionary whose name was Friedrich Schwartz from Germany, That man had come and labored long, preaching the gospel. With his own hands and the help of others, he put up a building where people who wanted to come and hear about this Jesus Christ could come. But very little fruit was born. However, above the entrance to that building was Psalm 95, 6. Come now, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. There is no better text, actually, for the whole mission enterprise than that text. If we were to go to Psalm 67, we hear the psalmist write these words. 
Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing joyfully to You. The goal of worship is that goal which God has called us to. We've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light to worship the Lord and to sing praises to Him. It's the fuel, true worship of God, is the fuel which energizes the church to make disciples of all nations because of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And our worship of Him is the expression of that love. Today we're going to talk about giving thanks from this psalm. We're going to begin by looking at the motivation for giving thanks. It's in this text of Scripture. The motivation is knowing God. Knowing the Lord. If we know the Lord, we cannot help but express our worship to Him. I took the time to count through these five verses. It's a rather short psalm. There are 13 references to the Lord, either by the proper name or pronouns which relate to His name. Obviously, God is to be the center of our worship. We are to worship the Lord. And we're told how to do this. By getting to know Him. How do we know God? The Bible says in the book of John, chapter 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. Eternal life, of course, means an abundant life, a life that begins the instant that you receive Christ, as your Lord and Savior, extends into eternity? Yes. But the essence of eternal life is having a relationship with God, which is one of intimacy, knowing God. When David was passing the baton to his son Solomon, he gathered all the dignitaries, all the officials, all the leaders of Israel. And in front of all these leaders, it would have been somewhat intimidating, I'm sure, for Solomon, because you may recall when he was visited by God in a vision after assuming the throne, God gave him one particular request. Any request, it was like, one wish is yours. What is it? And he was frightened by the responsibility which came to him. This is the advice which David, his father, who was a man after God's own heart, gave to his son. It's found in First Chronicles 28, verse 9. He said simply to him, before all these people, he said, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. Know the God of your father. Earlier in that book, First Chronicles, we hear the words of David when he says, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. That's the ESV translation. The New American Standard is more precise when it says, seek His face continually. Gives us a good insight into how we know God. Of course, we know God through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was asked by Philip, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. To which Jesus responded, Philip, have I been so long with you and you still do not know who I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We know that's how we see God. So we seek the face of God. And we're to seek His face how frequently? Continually. 
Here's how we get to know God on a practical level. You and I, day to day, once we have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have the unparalleled privilege of coming alone to God. And when we come, we do not come with the primary purpose of getting Him to do something for us. That would be seeking His hand. We come to honor Him, to get to know Him. We come to spend unhurried alone time with Him in order that we may know Him. Because in knowing Him, the key is set in the lock of the door and it's unlocked to a full life that has impact not just on time, but on etern- in eternity forever to know the Lord. This passage of Scripture gives us what the motivation is. The first aspect of the motivation is we know Him as our Creator. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. He's our Creator. There's a lot that flies in the face of this today, isn't there? The whole doctrine of evolution, it's really a religion if you get right down to it. It takes more faith to be an evolutionist than it does to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It amazes me how the devil has hoodwinked people when it comes to the whole matter of intelligent design. Those folks have to be like ostriches and put their heads in the sand because when you consider the intricacy of just the human body, not to mention the whole universe, and you see how there's coordination in the body, and that just doesn't happen. It is the work of God. David in Psalm 139 as he was contemplating who God was. The first 12 verses, he reports what he's come to know about God. He knows that God is all-knowing or omniscient. He knows that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. Those two aspects, which are just skimming the surface, as it were, regarding who God is, those truths set him free to really come to a place of self-acceptance in his life. David wrestled with it just like all of us do. Mark Twain said this, deep down in his heart, no man much respects himself. That was a man who didn't know God, but it would be true of us who do know God, but we really haven't gotten to know him to the point that we really know ourselves. We will never know ourselves until we first know God. There's so much energy, so much money, so much time spent on trying to discover who am I. We want to know who we are. We are people who are created in the image of God by none other than the Creator Himself. So we, when we think of our God, we're called to know it is He who has made us and not we ourselves. David says in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In that same section, he gives evidences of his having been fearlessly and wonderfully made. He begins with his psyche. He says, you have formed my inward parts. Literally the word inward parts, one word, kidneys. And that may seem strange to us, but for the Hebrew thinker, the emotions, the psyche, were vested in the kidneys. God knows who you are and He knows who I am. Psychologically, 
temperamentally. He knows all about that. He was the one who made you the way you are in your temperament. Also, David was deeply impressed by the fact that God had superintended his conception. If you read that, you can see how the language, some of it is very figurative, but you can see that he was fearfully and wonderfully made physically too. At the moment of conception, from one cell, before you or I were delivered from our mother's wombs, we multiplied two trillions of cells over a nine-month period of time. And all that was coordinated by God. The Scripture tells us that our God looked at our unformed substance. And then He was the one who delicately, this is the language of the Old Testament, delicately embroidered us. We were a work of art when we began to develop. And He watched what is called our unformed substance from the beginning. Literally, the word in Hebrew means rolled up substance. It's suggestive, embryonic material. God was in that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you want to read a book that will really encourage you by a medical doctor and a Christian writer, Paul Brand, who is with the Lord now, and Philip Yancey, who helped write the book. It is a beautifully, beautifully written book. In his image is one. Another one is fearfully and wonderfully made. And these experts in literature and also science combine and show how the formation of our physical being. He is our creator. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's He who's made us and not we ourselves. I was reading an article I hope to see. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood or whatever that Mr. Rogers movie is. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I saw the documentary last year and I was really impressed. I was moved. I never was much of a Mr. Rogers fan until I saw that documentary, and I want to see this. But I was warned in this article, you know, how I don't know about your phone. I don't know much about it. I know how to make a phone call and read about the Cardinals and the Cowboys and the Tennessee Volunteers. That's about all I can do with that thing. But Google reads your mail, doesn't it? I guess it's in it. It's kind of scary. But nevertheless, they know the kind of things you'd like to read. And there was an article by a man named Armand White, I'm sorry I can't remember which publication he writes for. But he talks about how, once again, Tom Hanks, who is a spokesperson for secular humanism, does it again and doesn't draw attention to the fact that Fred Rogers was a seminary-trained man. You can go to seminary and be lost as a goose spiritually. But he was a seminary-trained man who believed his ministry was to children. That's never really investigated to any level in the movie. There's this movement in the world, and it's not new. It started in the Garden of Eden, actually, where Satan lured Adam and Eve to sin and to take matters into their own hands, and they backed away from God's governance in their lives. Whereas they had had a perfect environment It was spoiled when they decided, we're going to do it our way, forget about God, because we're going to listen to the devil instead of to the Lord. This is what happens to us. 
I picked a book up. I was going to my favorite store to get books, Savers. Do you ever go to Savers? It's awesome. And if you're as old as I am, you can go on Tuesday and get 30% off. Plus, you buy four books, you get the fifth one free. I just go there to get a bargain. I don't even care what I get. You know, I'm just looking for some books. <laughs> to walk out with five books and I only spent $7, it's like I've died and gone to heaven. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but anyway, I was looking at some books, and there was a book by Jay Gould. I believe I have his first name correct. He was an eminent anthropologist, paleontologist at Harvard. Brilliant man. And he was talking, really it was his philosophy of life. And I was eager to see if there was any reference at all to God. Does the word God appear? Does the word Christ appear? And he was really talking about throughout history what what had happened. And there was not a single reference. And on the back page... The person who was promoting the book, the publisher, was talking about how Jay Gould has done it again. He's lived on the edge, and he's pushing the envelope, basically what the publisher was saying, pushing the envelope to eradicate God in the thinking of people. Well, our God is the Creator, and He is one whom we get to know as our Creator. Isn't He a great Creator? When we think about it, when we every time I crest the ridge coming this direction on West Wind, every time, I've been doing it for over 25 years now, and I'm just in awe. When I look at these mountains, and I think our God created these mountains, the nature, the creation declares the glory of God. And you, when I think about you, the uniqueness of every person in this room. Do you know there's no one else exactly like you on earth now? Billions of people. And God knows who you are. He created you. And He created you to know Him. That's His goal. And in knowing Him, what we do, we end up worshiping Him as our Creator. But here's another thing that this text teaches regarding what happens when we get to know the Lord. We know Him also as our caretaker. Look at the middle of verse 3. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Let's make the emphasis on the pronouns His. The Bible tells us that we have been bought with a price, those of us who know the Lord. We know what that price was. The precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify Him in our body. That's another way of saying we're to worship God through our bodies. The whole idea of worship, I've already indicated, is critically important to our fulfilling our mission here on earth because it's when you are alone with God and He begins to stir in your heart and you get to know who He is as your Creator And then as your caretaker, it's unbelievable how stimulating that is. We have incentive beyond incentive to share Christ. And it's almost as though we cannot help but do it. It's like Jeremiah the prophet. Remember what he said? Your word was like fire in my bones. And the Apostle Paul talked about, I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I can't keep it to myself. When you are a man or a woman who walks with God in this way. And you learn that you belong to Him. Among the names which God gives to Himself is that He's a shepherd. 
the first line of the beloved Psalm 23, probably the most familiar of all the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. That's an awesome thought when you consider that he is a shepherd who provides for us. He's Jehovah Jireh, I shall not want. He's a Lord who gives us peace. He settles me down by still waters. He leads me to green pastures. He is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. He is our righteousness. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And His name is Jehovah Sidkenu, another name. This is found in Jeremiah chapter 23. He is our righteousness. Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 where he describes Jesus as being, among other things, our righteousness. You and I have no righteousness of our own. All our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before God. We're in big trouble if it were not for what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus, who by His own description is the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus said, I'm different from a hireling. A hireling just does it for the money. I do it because I'm passionate about you. I died to purchase you. God the Father is passionate about you because He gave the ultimate gift of me, His Son, to take your punishment for Him, for you, on the cross so that you could be the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen to that. Praise the Lord for what He has done for us. He has chosen us to be the sheep of His pasture. He will never let us go. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. The Apostle Paul knew this. If time would permit, and I encourage you to do it on your own when you go home today, look up 2 Corinthians 11 and read the list of things that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. He's not bragging there. He's just telling how the Lord helped him and sustained him through incredible suffering in his life. Paul capsulizes this in the fourth chapter of Philippians. In that chapter, he talks about how he knew what it was to live in plenty. He knew what it was to live in poverty. He knew what it was to be well-fed. He knew what it was to be hungry. And he said, I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. And that raises a big question in my mind. I have found the answer. It took me a few years. I'm thinking, I think I know what it is. Because the next verse says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a good answer to the question, isn't it? And it's a proper answer. But the root answer is to be found. It's embedded in the most innocent sentence in this teaching in Philippians 4, 4, verses 4 through 19. And it's a simple statement. The Lord is near. He will never leave Paul. He will never leave you and me. Why? He's our shepherd. And if we wander, we know from the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 15, He leaves the whole herd behind to go look for me or to go look for you. Would you say that's important? That's an incentive for me to worship the Lord because He has that kind of desire 
for me. And it's true of you too. If you know the Lord, we know it's true. If you don't know Christ yet, come to Christ and find that He is an incredible shepherd. Bob Dylan, probably almost 40 years ago now, allegedly had a conversion experience and he wrote some really terrific music. One of the songs which he wrote, they were on two albums. One was called Slow Train Coming. The other one was called Saved. Saved really is the best description of his understanding of salvation. It's very clear, very solid. But in Slow Train Coming, he said, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And if you haven't come to that realization yet, please come to it quickly. It's Satan, the ruler of this world, who wants to keep you chained in sin. Or it's Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for you and took his life up again, being raised from the dead. We've sung about it today. It's Jesus Christ who says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they shall follow me. He knows you. They shall follow me and I will give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Don't you want someone to serve like Jesus? And serve Him. We will. In the book of Galatians 5, verse 13, the Bible says, Serve one another in love. That's us. I'm to serve you in love. You're to serve me in love. This is what God has called us to be. Servants to one another. And by the way, Servant is too mild an interpretation of the word in the original language. This is what it literally says. You are to enslave yourself to one another in love. Wow, wait a minute. That's going a little too far, Jesus. You know, I'm an American. I have my rights. (laughs) Yeah, but he says, your citizenship may be in El Paso, Texas. Or it may be in Kathmandu, Nepal. But I am your master. And whenever you find yourself in a very difficult relationship where you're called upon to serve one another, be a slave to somebody who may not give you the time of day, who may think she or he is superior to you, how do you do that? Well, for our benefit today... In Colossians, Paul is writing to slaves who know Christ in the church at Colossae. Not just to them, free men too, but the church in the first century, the first generation church, probably was comprised of almost half slaves, people. And they would come together to worship together with the free people. And they were one body in Christ, the Bible says in Galatians, There is neither slave nor free. We all are part of the body of Christ. There's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. So what are we to do? We're to serve one another. And this is what Jesus says to these slaves. He says to them through Paul. He says this to them. It is the Lord Christ you serve. And here again, the word serve is not the best translation. It's the word you are enslaved to. It is the Lord Christ to whom you're enslaved. So when I find myself in a situation that just eats me up, it gripes me to no end, I'm saying, how does he get off 
thinking that he has that right to my service. I'm not talking about the Lord here. I wouldn't say that to the Lord. But I'm talking about somebody else. Well, then I have to pause and remember the Holy Spirit's been so good to me to humble me over time and still is in the process of doing that to understand it's you, Jesus. Now, look, if Jesus Christ appeared right here, and I would say I'd fall down before the Lord. I'm pretty certain of that. I would fall before the Lord. And I would say, Lord, what can I do for you? And he'll say, well, I want you to feed the hungry. I want you to clothe the naked. I want you to give a water, cold drink of water to the thirsty. I want you to visit those who are in prison. I want you to visit the sick. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to do what I say in the Word of God. I want you to make disciples of me. And, okay, Lord. And then he gives us the assignment, and we follow it. Consider that we're to serve the Lord with gladness. We're going to look at that in just a moment. In verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. But let's go ahead and complete this part of the teaching. I wish we had time to look at all the names of the Lord. Do your own search in the Bible. You might want to look at Psalm 124, verse 8 which says, our help is found in the name of the Lord. Do you need help in your life? Get to know the Lord. The name is representative of the person in biblical language. And therefore, we are to get to know the Lord. How do we get to know Him? I don't want to sound like a broken record, but what we do is, what do we do? We spend time alone with the Lord, listening to Him, seeking His face, wanting to know Him. Now, let's look at the manner of giving thanks. First of all, we're to shout joyfully to the Lord. Look, at that's the way this is introduced. Shout joyfully to the Lord. This word was used to describe when God told Joshua to take the people and to encircle the city six days. One, rip, one round the city. Jericho was a sizable city. And they did just that without saying a word. They had instrumentalists with them without Blowing the shofar. The seventh day, he said, go around it. God said, go around it six times. And then on the seventh time, then blow the horn and the people shout. The very word translated shout here is that word. And we know what happened to, what happened to the walls of Jericho. They came tumbling down, didn't they? And God did a miracle there. It was a shout and it was victorious. It's also used in Psalm 41:11 to describe the shouting of a triumphant army over the enemy, and the enemy is present, having been captured. It's a sign of victory. We've seen movies like Braveheart. Did you ever see the movie Braveheart? It's awesome. William Wallace, tremendous figure, an historical figure, probably glamorized a little more than he should be by Hollywood, but tremendous. And you can remember how when they would win a battle, they were going into the battle, and they make this loud cry, wouldn't they? And then what strength they had left, once they had won, they would cry. It's a cry of victory. Do we have victory as followers of Jesus Christ? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. I know some of you are in very dark places in your life. And I'm not talking about sin. If you're in sin, you're in a dark place and you need to repent of that. But some of you are under circumstances that are very 
very debilitating. The Lord is with you in that dark place. And you have to believe what the Word of God says and spend time with Him. What happens when we're in a dark place? The devil drives a wedge. So, shouting joyfully to the Lord all the earth. If we go back to Psalm 95, the Bible says, Shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Now, let me stop just a moment. It's not the normal word in the Hebrew language for psalm. It's a word which means a song with musical accompaniment. And this idea of shouting is really shouting to the Lord. When we come together to sing, we're not here to try to outdo each other as to who can sing the loudest or who can sing with more enthusiasm. We're just coming to worship the Lord. Do you know who our audience is when we come here? The Lord. That's why it doesn't matter matter whether you can sing worth a hoot. I was trying to think of a better way of saying that, but I couldn't at the moment. It doesn't matter. To whom are we singing? To the Lord. We're worshiping the Lord with enthusiasm. This word carries with it the idea of the shouting, the splitting of the ear. I wanted to look up where is the place outside of a rock concert in America where there's the highest number of decibels. And I learned in the process that if I'm exposed to 70 decibels, which is just a little bit above what is normal conversational decibels, that's 60, just 10 decibels above, if I'm exposed for an extended period of time, it can damage my hearing. But when you get to 120 decibels, you're going to have permanent damage when you're exposed to that over time. Well, I learned, I wanted to know which NFL stadium, of course I'm interested in football, which NFL stadium has the loudest congregation, if you will, worshiping their team. I thought it'd probably be Seattle Seahawks. I'd heard about that. But Kansas City Chiefs, 142.2 decibels. Imagine. Now, we don't need to try to be the Kansas City Chief fan base or the Seattle fan base. We just need to worship the Lord. This is a part of it. Serving the Lord with gladness. Some of us serve the Lord with glumness, not gladness. You'd think, wow, what happened to him? I read the story about a pastor in Scotland years ago, and it was before the days of any kind of mechanized travel. It was the dead of winter. He woke up one Sunday ready to go to preach the gospel to his congregation. He came out and the river that flowed by his house and flowed all the way down to the church house was frozen over. He loved to skate. He got his ice skates out and he skated all the way down. And you can imagine the response, his congregation, when they saw, here comes the pastor skating to church. And some people were excited. They thought, now I can skate to church because it won't be considered sin. The elders received a lot of negatives, and some of them were just incensed that he would do such a thing on Sunday of all days. So they had a meeting. This is no made-up story. They had a meeting, and finally they agreed, the elders agreed, that they could go to the pastor in front of the church and say a question to him to try to determine if it was sin or not. And the question was, did you enjoy it? (laughs) With the implication, if he had enjoyed it, he was in sin. Look, we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? 
This is to be a place where we worship the Lord with great joy. We have something to be joyful about. We have a relationship with the Lord God Himself. He has created us for this. And then, of course, we are to sing to Him. And we've had a beautiful day of singing, haven't we? Worshiping the Lord together. It's been awesome. If you were to look at Psalm 95 carefully, as early as the 4th century forward, the model for a worship service among Christian churches is there. It's been used since the 4th century. That's a long time, 1,800 years. It was known as venite, Becky, venite. That was the word that was used for it. It was the call to worship. And there are three components. First of all, there's this joyful singing and praising of the Lord. And then there's this reverent bowing before the Lord. When we contemplate God, and all our music has to be, if it's Christian, has to be centered in the person of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To worship, this is the criterion we apply to determine if music is really something that God would be pleased with. And when we worship the Lord in such a context, then the result is we are humbled. And all the shouting calms sounds, settles down. And then the last part is, if you hear the Word of God today, do not harden your heart. We get to the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks to us. These are the components of a worship experience. Let's look at verse 5 as we finish. Really, 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The psalmist says, I'd rather spend one day in the court of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. One day. An hour and a half spent here on Sunday morning worshiping the Lord together is better than a thousand elsewhere. 1,500, to be precise, hours doing anything else if we're really worshiping the Lord. And we don't have to limit it, of course, to here. We worship it privately, but we come together. I think of what David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's a place for corporate worship. It's very vital. Private worship, yes, corporate worship also. It's not either or, it's both and. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. The word bless in verse 4 means to kneel. That's what it literally means. Bless His name. Praise carries with the idea of hymn, hymnody, singing songs. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. He is good. His loving kindness. This combines the New Testament word for mercy and grace into one word. Hesed is the word. Is everlasting and is faithfulness to all generations. Our God is a faithful God. Jesus is a faithful shepherd. And we want to learn how to worship Him. Don't you want to worship the Lord? We're going to close with a worship song. So you can stand. We're going to sing Give Thanks with a Grateful Heart. It's a very familiar chorus. We're going to sing this. And we're sing this as our benediction. Sing this to the Lord from your heart. Let's sing this together.